to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this episode of the American Bar Association Business Law Section Bankruptcy Committee's podcast on bad boys and bankruptcy. I'm Judge Elizabeth Gunn, your podcast host, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by three players in one of the most infamous fraud cases of the Pacific Northwest in the last couple of decades. We've got with me today Jim Rigby, the Chapter 7 trustee of the Mastro case, and Amy Willig and Thomas Buford, who are both attorneys in the case. I'll note that our discussion today is going to factor into the public record and the reactions and the impressions made by these three and nothing that was brought with any kind of confidence. But I'm so thrilled to have you all with me today to discuss this. Um, One article called this, Catch Me If You Can Meets Cocoon. And I I tried to think about that and the, the great diamond chase because never have I seen a case involving so many capers as well as so many carrots. So Jim, can you give us a quick background as to who Frank Ma- or who Michael Mastro was, who his wife were, and why this became such a newsworthy event in the Pacific Northwest? Sure, all in one sentence. Um, Michael Mastro was a real estate developer and hard money lender in Seattle that I, I think probably every business attorney in, in Seattle knew who he was. Uh, he was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, real estate player in uh, Western Washington. And uh, he found himself on hard times and in bankruptcy in 2009. Uh, I was appointed as his trustee. Amy's firm was my general counsel. Thomas at that time, who's now with Amy's firm, was uh, in the U.S. trustee's office. And... Um, Mastro filed, he had like a third of a billion dollars, that's like 330 million about in secured debt, about the same in uh, unsecured debt, about a third of a billion dollars. And he had, oh, about $250,000 in uh, ultimately in in assets, which were liquidated to reduce the the secured debt. And that wasn't so much the problem, is is that he was was just a fraudster from the get-go. he, they managed the case in the year or more before the filing so that there were, were no assets in the case. There was no cash whatsoever. I mean, in, in December 3108, he fought, um, published financial statements claiming a equity of, I think, about $125 million. And uh, in August, September that same year, he didn't have two pennies to rub together, uh, according to the papers filed in the bankruptcy court. So let's let's take a step back though, because he doesn't sound like someone who filed voluntarily. And I know this was an involuntary case. Who did he tick off that put him into an involuntary case? Well, I don't know if it's tick off is so much as didn't pay. Um, there were three banks, three local banks that sued him. They had secured debts, but the, but the real estate values had gone down in value. This was July '09. And, you know, the Northwest is typically the last place in the country that feels the pain of a, of a recession and uh, or, or just a downturn. And, and things had been going down for quite a period of time. And, and the banks could see that uh, they were undersecured. They were owed money that was not secured. And 
uh, they could see that he was very, very busy doing something all during this time. He had lots of irons in the fire, lots of things happening, but he wasn't paying his bills, wasn't one of the things that happened. So I, I think these three banks got together and the thought process must have been that, you know, we, the sooner we get him into bankruptcy, uh, the better chance we have to recover something uh, for our unsecured portion of our debt. So Thomas, I, Jim was the Chapter 7 trustee, but I understand it wasn't your typical uh, beginning to a trusteeship in, in a Chapter 7 case. Uh, no, no, I think you can you, you can say that again. It was one of the more atypical uh, beginnings of a, of a Chapter 7 case. Uh, there was a trustee election called at the first Section 341 meeting of creditors because of some noticing issues and how close that about 700 parties got added to the mailing matrix. Uh, they didn't have notice of that first meeting of creditors. And so the, the meeting ended up getting continued for about 30 days, which in retrospect allowed a whole lot of time for folks to go out and, and try to organize votes and, and rally behind their preferred candidate. And so you know, Jim was a longtime um, Chapter 7 trustee, speaking of people well known to everyone in the Western Washington business community, um, certainly the bankruptcy community, Jim had handled some of the toughest cases around and I think had a lot of confidence of the institutional and uh, institutional creditors as well as the, the frequent flyers in the bankruptcy system, the attorneys all, all knew Jim and, and whether they had been on the same side or opposite side, knew that, that Jim had the skill set to handle a complex case like this. At the initial meeting and then again at the continued meeting, um, certain creditors put forth a, a rival trustee candidate uh, named Brian Ward. Mr. Ward had not had a role in a, in a bankruptcy case previous to being proposed as the alternative trustee uh, for the Mastro case. And, and there was, uh, to say a fair amount of interest in the case would be putting it mildly. One only has to go look at the notice of appearances that it showed up in the first 30 days of the case. And, and uh, I have long joked that if you could say the word bankruptcy and you had a law license, you had a role in the Mastro case. It was the biggest case in town. It was the biggest case in town that had been around for years and just the salacious nature of Mr. Mastro's business dealings over the years uh, created an enormous amount of interest. So we get to the continued hearing. And again, the, the, the creditor, certain creditors called for a trustee election, which the United States trustee did conduct. And it turns out that the, the creditor seeking to oust Mr. Rigby, who had coalesced around Mr. Ward, um, had been busy during that interim period and had been out soliciting uh, proxies and, and other uh, methods to, to gain votes for Mr. Ward. I think it's fair to say that the individuals doing this either didn't know that Federal Rule of Bankruptcy Procedure 2006 existed, or if they did, that they just didn't think it applied to this case because they managed to violate it in basically every way that that a, a group of creditors could in attempting to conduct a trustee election. And, and the result was that an election was conducted, although the U.S. trustee took the position it never fully got adjudicated, although the bankruptcy court agreed with the trust with the U.S. trustee that not enough creditors called for a vote. Um, the U.S. trustee conducted the election anyway in case that conclusion was incorrect, and the overwhelming percentage of unsecured creditors voted for Mr. Rigby. Uh, now, kind of kind of hearkening back to what I just said about sort of the institutional creditors is it was interesting that 
banks in the case, the, the lenders who were familiar with the bankruptcy system and familiar with the players, almost uniformly supported Mr. Rigby's candidacy to remain as Chapter 7 trustee. Again, they had faith in him. They'd known him as a trustee for many years. Whereas uh, a group of, honestly, the creditors who had been defrauded by Mr. Mastro sought this alternative candidate. And so it, it's a fascinating report. Uh, the matter did uh, get appealed by the, the losing party, by the parties uh, pushing Mr. Ward's candidacy. It went up to the bankruptcy appellate panel, which affirmed the bankruptcy judges, uh, ruling that the election, one, wasn't properly held because there weren't enough votes. But if it was, that Mr. Rigby received the overwhelming majority of votes and therefore could remain as Chapter 7 trustee. So let's turn to you, Amy, because this Thomas mentioned just look at the docket. And if you look at the docket, first of all, hundreds and hundreds of docket entries. But one thing you'll see early on is something like over 60 motions for relief from the automatic stay, which harkens to the fact that there was a lot of property. And maybe we'll start with real property. I know the fun discussion with Mr. Master really gets to some of the other issues, and we'll save those for just a little bit. But let's talk about that first flurry of relief from stay and, and how all of that and how how many properties he really had his hands on and what, what came out of those things early on in the case. Yes, so Jim can correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is there were over 100 properties um, that Mastro held, usually indirectly. Almost all of them were held in wholly owned LLCs. And so creditors to be safe would come and seek relief from say, stay, saying, we, we do not need it. This is a comfort order, um, but we're just making sure that, you know, we were blessed to go foreclose. Um, again, following 2008, the world that we were living living in was unprecedented. And Jim's great concern was that we were going to look like we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing, which is to find any dollar of equity anywhere. There just was none to be found. And so, you know, property after property after property, we would have to, and we always affirmatively did something. We never just didn't respond to the motion, even if it was just, unfortunately, we agree, Your Honor. And Jim was smart enough to have us engage a um, real estate consultant that easily could have just been, instead of this role, in deals where we did have deals. And he, um, everybody recognized we need somebody that was simply, and it was that crazy that we needed somebody simply, somebody in the role of an advisor only vis-a-vis uh, -vis real property issues. Um, and I'm not trying to talk over you, Jim, but I am recalling one property that I think you located that actually did have equity in, say, New Jersey or something, and it was held in an entity that I think we, you and there was many lawyers and different law firms. So I think it was a different firm that they sought authority to cause that entity to put itself into a seven to liquidate that property. And anyway, but that was far and few between. So, but there was one property, which really, if you Google Mastro and you Google property, it's just, he purchased this property for $15 million and the estate was able to sell that property. My question was, there was a Chihuly, was it centerpiece? What happened to the Chihuly? Because really, I don't care about the Steinway and they took a, it seems like the estate did make some money off the sale of the residence, but what happened to, no, well, what happened with that sale? Because that seems like that was one property there was some interest in. I think there were two pieces of Chihuly uh, art, at least two. And we had um, the James C. Murphy Company, an auction company, 
in uh, Seattle auctioned off his personal property over a couple of different auctions. And, and I think that that Chihuly went uh, through that. I understand your affinity for it, but there were so many things happening and so much property sold that my memory's not like iron on that, right? That's all right. I do. I, I did read about some of the other auctions and maybe we'll come back to those. The 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 property that was sold, the former, I guess it was the former residence, that was really the one of the biggest assets other than when we get to the jewelry here in a moment that the estate ended up having, right? And and didn't you have to go through some machinations just to get to the title of that property? I believe there might have been a trust in Belize involved. Right, right. The, you know, going back to August of uh, 2009, I was appointed on a Friday afternoon. And, and so I telephoned uh, Tom Bucknell, who was the attorney for Masco, and said I was a trustee and I'd like to meet with him. And so I think I went over there, I think on Monday or Tuesday, the next week. And we went through the schedules and there was no no property, you know. They didn't list very much property. They didn't list very many creditors. It's kind of a mess. But they they told me, oh, don't worry about the house. It's in a trust. They formed a about a year prior in the fall of 2008. They formed a trust. I think it was an LCY trust, and it was um, from in Belize. Like that's in a small country in Central America. I didn't even know where it was at the time. Uh, and, and there was a quote-unquote protector, kind of a co-trustee, located in Belize. And they, uh, the Belizean Trust formed uh, limited liability companies, I think, and they were, um, I think, in New Jersey. And so we had like LCY Home, LCY Autos, LCY Jewelry, you had limited liability companies with these different assets in it. And, and Master and his wife, Linda, were were the, the beneficiaries. And I think Mastro in a sense was a trustee. So they said, oh, don't worry about all these property it was put in a trust a long time ago and uh, you're not going to see it. And then, so a little, a little Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to all of the exactly. assets hidden behind the curtain. There's, there's nothing to see here. But, yeah, but, so you, you mentioned Linda, who I, I get a feel had let's call caviar taste on what she was trying to tell you was albacore canned tuna budget is that kind of a, I mean this is just what I'm gleaning from the news but is that tell me about Linda well um hmm. they they had been married you know, I don't know 20 years about at that point in time uh, Mastro was 85 then Linda was like 62 or 63 um you know I, I think she lived to live a good life um, she wanted the best clothes, and the, and she wanted the no tuna, please, caviar only, and the, no beer, just champagne. Um, and you know, the judge found in the trial that she knew what he was up to. She assisted him to some extent, but she acquiesced or agreed with everything. He'd signed her name all over things, and she said yes. You know, he had her authority to do it. So she, she um, was, was quite a character. So it sounds like, Amy, there may have been some issues of um, forgeries or questionable signatures. And was that something that played into some of the litigation that you in, that the trustee and you on behalf of the trustee and they're bringing in the case? Yes, I think it, it was rampant. I mean, there was so much litigation that we're not at all touching at this moment in time that many, many a character 
but I did just have one uh, short experience that I'll just share because it's, it's something I will always remember as a very unusual little highlight of my career. And um, so one of Mastro's sources of, of income was hard, his own hard money loans to individuals. Um, and when he would go incur debt for his myriad, like, you know, whatever, every apartment building, he, he just was in every type of real property transaction. He would get obviously secured loans, no big deal. But every he was like king, king of Seattle. So the banks would just throw money at him. So he would be say, oh, can I have an extra three million unsecured? Sure. So these banks in the case had a ton of unsecured debt. Forget about just because of lack of equity. They simply had loaned unsecured money. So toward as you know, economy was getting worse and worse. Some of them were like, well, we, we kind of need something for this. So he was like, oh, here are my notes receivable from you know John Smith, who's you know, I've loaned at whatever interest rate that's absurd, you know, secured by his little houses or whatever. And so we were trying to understand some of these collateral pools and that the little banks like actually physically had the, the notes that, that were their collateral in favor of Mastro. So I, with one of the lawyers, I physically went to one of the banks and was sitting in the room with the bankers because they, like I said, they had the physical collateral for us to inspect. And they kind of pushed them across the table to us. And I'm with an astute litigator. Um, and he just kind of takes the signature pages from the three. These were all supposedly from the same individual in favor of Mastro. And he holds them up to the light and says, you know how you find out if there's forgery is if the signatures are actually identical, which they were precisely. And these, these poor bankers just, like I said, turned sheet white and had to realize that they had zero collateral. So we could spend a lot of time, days, talking about the forgeries and the, the Belize assets and the transfers and all of that. But let's get to the, the thing that really hit the press, which makes this case just that much more over the top. And, and I said this was catch me if you can meets cocoon, because at one point, you, Jim, you and your counsel got an order for Mr. Mastro and his wife to turn over what we're calling the big rocks. And um, again, a quick Google search will find you, I think, pictures of what turned out to be a 27 something-ish carat diamond, bigger than you know a good sized chocolate, and a 17 carat diamond, which became the subject of literally an international manhunt. So maybe, Amy, you can tell me about the order and the contempt order to turn this over, and then we can someone else can maybe take up the literal flee across Canada. Well, I the only reason I cite those orders is because everybody knew that the judge had really paid attention and simply said, where are they turn them over, these famous rings? Um, but Jim, Jim got to enjoy kind of the actual nitty gritty of, of what in the world all of that meant when the Mastro's disappeared. So I'll let so, him answer. Jim, do you want to, I mean, I know the facts and I'm happy to recite them, but you may give a much more colorful version of what exactly happened after the bankruptcy judge ordered the Mastro's to turn over the jewels. Nothing. <laughs> nothing, nothing happened, and then more nothing happened, and nothing happened for well over a year. So I, I think if my memory is correct, that was the summer of 2011 that uh, the judge entered the order. And after that, I mean, 
we heard nothing. I guess there was a press release or an article in the newspaper that the marshal's office had, had been looking for him and that he'd escaped to Canada. And that was the end of it. And so after several months, um, we engaged in action the following summer, make that the following fall, October 2012, we engaged um, through council a couple of private investigators in Europe. And, and coincidentally, they were just engaged within a day plus or minus of an announcement that Mastro had been arrested in France. So our, our investigator went to France uh, a couple days later and initiated an investigation. So Mastro, I think, was arrested on a Wednesday, and I think our guy went to France on a Saturday or Sunday. And uh, that week, he conducted an investigation. And, and he found, uh, I mean, one thing he did was, was he's was, he was looking for the Mastro's uh, trail, and the press had misreported for some reason uh, the location of his arrest. But our, and this is a, this is an Annecy in France. It's on Lake Annecy. It's an hour outside of Geneva. It's in the Alps. It's basically a vacation resort, a very small area. It's not. New York or, or Paris or anything like that. So he goes to a, a tavern in town. There's probably only one. He's smoozing with the bartender. He says, oh, no, he wasn't arrested. He was arrested over there. So he knew, and this guy had been trained by MI6. So he's an intelligence officer by training. And um, he knew that uh, the masters had three dogs with them, the little, little kind of toy dogs about the size of a kitten. And um, he goes and, and starts looking on the internet for a veterinarian office. And, and he said he went to the, or started with the most upscale one he could see from the internet. And he went in there and, and you know, this is France, right? Most of the people are speaking French, not English. And so, so you remember a couple of Americans in here with three little juicy uh, dogs or something like that. And, Oh, yeah, yeah, we remember them. They're a great customer. They've been here 15 times in the last year. And, oh, what can you tell me about him? Well, here's his file. Here's his credit card receipts. Here's, you know, the, the workup we did on the dog. Here's his email. Here's his address. So he had these guys. Uh, he had a great start on the case at, at that point. And he, um, he followed it up from there. During that week, he... They had moved in the course of the year. They had a lakefront um, villa that they uh, were in for a number of months uh, that was like 5,000 euros, over $5,000 a month. And he found that by, by just as a little town, by walking through the town and stopping in the coffee shop. Oh, do you remember the Americans? The three little dogs. Oh, sure. They live down the road. And they're so nice. They come in here every day and buy a cup of coffee each. And isn't life good? And so um, we spent a week, you know, a working week doing that. I get an email on Friday morning uh, requesting a conference call. Um, I knew these guys had been hired, but I'd never talked to them before. And it was basically just my, my counsel for the overseas, um, the overseas asset recovery work. And, and I thought it was just going to be a conference call with them. And actually, one of them was in Belize at that point, I think. 
we said this conference call. So I get on the phone and there's the uh, the, the two um, investigators are, are on the phone with him. This is in my time, like 11 o'clock on Friday. And they're saying, wow, you know, we found out Maslow's got two safety deposit boxes. We've been to the bank. Um, he's, he's had money in the bank. Um, we found that he's been selling jewelry to uh, live on for living expenses. He's been selling gold coins for living expenses. And um, apparently in France, the bank keeps the keys for the safe deposit box. But anyhow, it would take two bank officers to open it and the boxes and one was out till Tuesday. And, and the investigators were saying that um, he thought that I needed to be there Monday morning because the FBI, um, the head of the FBI in France was coming down from Paris to Annecy the next week, like Monday. And uh, they were hoping to open up the, the boxes. And, and they were, my, my investigators thought that the bankers might give me the, the contents. And they were also afraid that the FBI would not take possession of it, that, that it would just be left in the box. And the master, he was in jail at that time with his wife. They were both in jail. If they'd gotten out of jail and um, had access to the boxes and, and the contents, well, we'd never see them again, or at least it'd be a couple of years before we caught up with them again. So, you know, that was, we talked for about an hour. I went home, got my passport, told my wife I was going to uh, France the next day. And um, I went to France the next day, flew to France. So this wasn't the end of it, though, right? We, we oh. get to France, we find, I think what's been reported, something like 11 suitcases worth of jewelry that had been moved down kind of like a jewelry ATM machine to fund their right. living in France. But this wasn't the end of the story. You didn't just get to bring eleven suitcases of jewels back to the U.S. So what? What was the? Oh. What, so as they say, what's the rest of the story? Well, it's, it's actually got it got to be quite long because the um, the department. You know, I'm in contact with the local U.S. attorney's office, and they're saying, "Well, we want all the jewelry." I had a receiver appointed in France to collect all of the property until there was a legal determination as to who owned, who owned the property. So. I go over there and, and before, you know, we actually, I think we did meet with the uh, the local chief of police of a small, small firm. And um, the, I went to the master's apartment after it had been cleaned out, but they had, it was basically a vacation, like a condo for a vacation type of thing, what we would see here. And um, it was a three bedroom unit. And uh, the investigator with me was explaining what he'd seen. He'd been in there a week before with the receiver we had, and the receiver had cleaned out all the assets of value. But in, in one bedroom was chucked full of suitcases, and the suitcases were full of designer clothing and jewelry. And I mean, there's sack after sack after sack of jewelry. And he said what it looked like was that they had kind of the commercial jewelry, and then Linda would have her separate, so her separate jewelry. And, Looked like it was, you know, taken better care of or, or quite available. This other stuff was all packaged up so he could take it down to the shop and, and sell it. But they had in there, uh, the receiver picked up, you know, they had receipts uh, of where they'd been. There, there were tablets of uh, calculations for the budget, uh, all kinds of assets. Basically, he was running a business out of this uh, small apartment. And when the police had come in, and arrested them. They just simply said, you know, pick up what's of value here because we're going to the police station and you're not coming back. So they, at that point, they took with the police, they went and took their laptops, their cell phones, 
and, and the big diamonds and a bunch of the jewelry, but not nearly all of them. So, so let, that, let, let's play this forward then. We, they're, they're found, they've been arrested. Did we get, did they come back to the U.S.? I mean, I know the answer, but I, I'm not sure who wants to take this question, but you know, we, it sounds obviously bankruptcy fraud and all kinds of other federal crimes issues. And yet, let me ask, the, I'm gonna lead, lead with a question. Where are the Mastros now? The Mastros are still in Annecy. They, they had a trial, an extradition trial, and um, there, there's a clause in the treaty that for humanitarian purposes, they can refuse to extradite. At that point, Mastro was 87 and his wife was 65 or something. And, and he, he, they were both kind of playing, kind of lame. And, and the French thought it would be harsh to send them back to the U.S. The French asked, the French Department of Justice asked the U.S. Department of Justice, well, will you agree that there will be no jail term for this guy? And uh, the, the U.S. Department of Justice, I think, properly so said, no, we're not going to agree to that. I mean, basically, this guy had stolen money from people who were going to end up eating cat food. Um, I mean, people who had some savings would, would park it with him, like um, just individuals, over $100 million he borrowed from individuals. And I got so many calls from people saying, oh, my husband who's died, you know, six months ago, he invested our IRA with Mastro. And, we, we, we've got $5,000 there, and I, I needed to pay the rent this month. What do I do? I said, mm, this is not good. I can't really help you. Um, if you get any money from the estate, it's not going to be before you get thrown out of your apartment. I mean, and so but that was the situation. I'm sure a lot of the people he stole money from were big money people. Maybe you don't have to feel sorry for them. But with a lot of people, this was, this was their life savings. It wasn't a huge amount. And, and he took it, and the French said, oh, it would be wrong to send him to jail. Uh, for, for, you know, ripping off a bunch of people. So anyhow, he's still in Annecy, as far as I know, living the good life. Um, so that's what happened. And, and the jury just got caught up in a big cluster mess uh, with the Department of Justice. Well, let me talk to Amy about that, because there were at least two pieces that we that were able to be liquidated by the trustee. And, and those are the, the big rings, the big diamonds, the as as I'm going to quote the uh, the movie um, Sweet Home Alabama, where they go, ah, oh, you wear an ice skating rink on your finger, and you probably could have ice skated across one of or both of these diamonds. So a lot of the jewelry got caught up in, in in bureaucracy beyond what we can cover in our podcast today. But what can we tell me about the diamonds? Because really, I mean, diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yeah, so the moment where they were physically in our possession, it's itself was it, comical just getting them, like coordinating with the bankruptcy court that that's right, we were bringing an armed person <laughs> with us to the bankruptcy court, things like that. So the whole thing was relatively comical, but eventually, ultimately, we verify they are what they are, we bring them back <clears throat> to our jeweler. Um, and, you know, they are being witnessed that we've been talking about these rings for two years. Um, but I, Jim has the ultimate uh, kind of conclusion as to as to the diamonds themselves. They they were amazing to see. But with respect to the big value that we all expected, um, Jim, you you can finish that up. Sure. The, the big one, the 27 carat diamonds, I think they call it a pear shape. It was a ring. Um, and and the, the ring was bigger than the index or whatever part of the finger that it sat on. If you're familiar with an American Indian arrowhead, it was about that size, just massively huge. Now, it was really quite yellow, 
So if you're a connoisseur of the girl's best friends, this might not have been the best one. And, but we ultimately sold it after a massive amount of, of litigation and work against the Department of Justice. And I think we got a million dollars for it, which was, we were disappointed with that. Uh, the other ring was 17 carats. It was a beautiful diamond. I, I thought it was really, it was round. It was not as big as your small pinky, but it was massively huge. It was beautiful. Now, we hired a um, local jeweler to sell those on a commission. And what he wanted to do was to document what we had before we went to sell it. So there's apparently, there's a little game can be played with a diamond where you treat it um, with some sort of pressure. I don't know how it's done, but you, your diamonds are formed, as we all know, from pressure on, on carbon. And, and you can kind of boost the uh, effect of the diamond by, by doing that industrially. Well, there's two laboratories at that time, commercial laboratories in the United States that could detect whether or not that had occurred with, with this particular diamond. And so we sent it off. I don't remember if it was to LA or New York, but anyhow, we sent it off and we got back to the report. And he said, in fact, that the diamond had been treated, that it was like a half a grade higher uh, because of that treatment. And, and I'm not quite really sure I understand why it makes any difference because to me, it's just how, how beautiful is the diamond. But I, I think there's maybe some concern that over time the diamond may undo its beautifulness. I mean, that it may go backwards. I don't see how. But anyhow, uh, we sold it and we got way less than a million dollars for it, which was disappointing given the amount of energy that went into recovering it. So we've chased Mr. Mastro and his wife across Canada and their Land Rover with their three dogs and their suitcases full of jewels. And, and, and we didn't cover it, maybe it was directly, but you know, the description I've been told about how this happened was on one of the eve of the fourth contempt hearing when the, the marshals were coming, they loaded up their Land Rover and literally drove across the border and across Canada, there's an, an interview with Mr. Master saying, oh, we stayed at these really lowbrow hotels that we could right. hide and pay cash, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Then they had to call in a favor with someone who clearly wasn't disenfranchised by the bankruptcy process yet to find a puddle jumper, which would fly them and the three dogs, which ended up being their downfall in France, not from directly from Canada to France, but from Canada to Greenland for refueling and then to France. You've got a private investigator. They're, they're finally arrested and decided extradition trial is held. The, the big diamonds are brought back home. So at the end of the day, what was the recovery for creditors? I mean, obviously, an enormous amount of efforts were put in on behalf of counsel and the trustee and everyone. And I know the case isn't quite over. So what was the distribution so far? What might be left to be done? I know all of the big happenings were a decade ago, but it's still lingering. So what are we looking at in the future? What what might finally be the, the end of the tale of, Fran of Mr. Mastro? Right. You know, if we go back to, I think we sold the house in uh, 2012, in the fall of 2013. Anyhow, we go back to that point in time. We got nine, nine, nine Nine million and a couple hundred thousand for the sale of the house. Um, 
in, in my own mind, I thought you know, this would be a great place to just close this case down. But you know what I had, because I could have distributed six, seven, eight million dollars to the creditors, but I had lawsuits all over. I mean, I, I probably had more than 30 different lawyers in this case at, at any one time, or over time. And um, I, I didn't think the judge was going to go for that, and probably the creditors wouldn't either, because we would be just walking away from potentially a lot of assets. The, the problem with the Masco case is the, the way he did his business. Um, you know, I would think of like a bank robber as just going in and doing a job once, and then you're done, you can retire and go work. But the way this guy worked, everything he touched was rotten. Everything he touched was a mess. Like Amy referenced the property. We found that he owned uh, property on Long Island Sound in uh, New York on Long Island, uh, looking at Connecticut. We owned a, a point. It was a building lot, right? But just a building lot. and was just on a point in, in a development. And um, we went to sell it. And well, somebody jumps up, oh, I, I have this problem. I've got that problem with it. Then we go to sell it, and the buyer wants to get a, a you know, they can build on the site. And, and the city says, oh, you can't, you can't build on that site because there's um, this flower, you know, there's the plant life on there. That's a wet zone. And we uh, said baloney. I mean, and, and the city blocked our sale. Meanwhile, tried to amend their local zoning laws to include this property as a wetland because the, pro the plants they used to define a wetland were not found on this property. So we're in a fight with the city over the zoning saying, you can't downzone this, we're ready to build on it. And you're trying to change this on us. And so every asset we identified and went after ended up being consumed by the legal fees to liquidate it. And the same thing happened in, in California. We found we had a square mile of land down in California. So we go to sell that. And some guy steps up and says, oh, well, I own that LLC that holds that, well, show us. Well, he owned an LLC that was a similar name in a different state. But, but you know, Master would do ABC LLC Nevada Corporation, ABC Corporation California. And you better be sure what you're looking at when you look at the paper, because literally a comma makes the difference between, you know, California, Nevada, whatever. I mean, so we, we got, I don't know, a million bucks for that property or something. But we ended up spending almost that much on, on legal fees. So... To circle back to your original question, when we sold the house, um, I figured out that a 1%, we had liquidated the unsecured creditors at that point. We got through the whole claims process and there were, you know, $50 million here and $100 million there that got bounced out because these were false, fictitious claims, fraudulent claims. We got it down to $220 million in creditors. And so I dispersed. $2.2 million at 1%. And, and that's that's pitiful from the creditor's side. Um, but that's what there was. You know, at this point in time, we're really for the last five years in this case, we've been pursuing a very small project in France to get all of the banking records. It's, it's not a big deal. Probably doing it in France, uh, it is a big deal. And, and so we're on the verge. We, we've just in this uh, last month, held a deposition of the bankers, three different banks. We've got most of this stuff they're following up. And so either we're going to find um, assets to chase further or close the case. The problem with this case has been we're going to find something that we could chase. 
out of this because every, I mean, bachelor's, I mean, it's like leaving crumbs everywhere. There's information. If you comb things fine enough, you find something to look at. And, and, and again, we've gone year after year of looking at million or multi-million dollar assets and, and begin to move on them, all of a sudden find out you're being blocked this way or that way by basically a, a, a criminal gang. Uh, you know, way, one way to kind of look at math you're doing business is if, um, if you're playing cards, even a poker game with say five other people, and, and they seem to, you know, a couple of them have done business before, they're kind of a, you know, a loose relationship, but they don't all know each other. Um, what's going on is they're all circling to fleece you. No matter which one of them one wins, you're going to lose. They're going to play until you lose, and then they're going to go out and divide up what they took away from you. And that seems to be the way these master deals all work. There's, usually, you would have to have an explanation for the documentation because normally the documentation was vague enough that it could go a couple of different ways. And so I think that would do is leave Master with an option of figuring out which way he wanted to go at a later date. And, and, and then he could, could go that way. I can give you an example if you want me just to stream on here for a while. Um, and, uh, after he put his home in, in the uh, LCY trust, there was no debt against it. So he had a business associated uh, something Dorsers out of Monaco in um, uh, Principality in France. And uh, he gave a deed of trust to Dorsers for $12 million. And so if you go look the property up on the property records, you know, it's worth 15, well, there's a second and a third, but we'll worry about those for now. There's this $12 million deed of trust in front. So we have Dorsers in the deposition. Uh, I'm thinking it was in um, probably in September uh, of the 09, the year I was appointed. And Dorsters had a sheet that said, this is how this $12 million loan will, will be divided up. And it's got a bunch of master creditors, friends and family creditors. And so, well, how do you get this sheet? Oh, you know, about three months ago, I was woken up in the middle of the night, my fax went off and I got this sheet. And so I called um, another master partner in uh, Seattle, because it was daytime here, and said, what's going on? He says, oh, well, we just need you to sign this and shoot it back at us. So he signed it and sent it back. And, and so they were presenting this to us as the documentation for the loan for the $12 million. But the judge found in the trial there was no $12 million. That money was never never loaned to Mastro. And Dorsters did loan Mastro $1.2 million at a different time, and now it's still owed. And those... The, the conversation and the documents kind of overlap, but I think the judge made the right finding on that, that that particular deed of trust, there was no, uh, there was no debt. And uh, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, this really was the, the, the trustee appointment or election that kept on giving for you, Jim. And it's incredible. All of the areas of law that you had to touch throughout this. So let me turn to Thomas. Any final piece of the puzzle that we, you know, we're, we're running low, low on time, but I want to give you an opportunity. Any piece of the puzzle that you want we didn't touch that you might want to highlight with respect to how it's taken over a decade to unwind a web that clearly was wound over decades leading into the, the fall and the real maybe wouldn't have been unwound, but for the collapse of the, the market in 2008? Sure, sure. A couple of things. Uh, one, 
you know, the U.S. trustee filed an 18-page complaint to deny Mastro's discharge that, that uh, honestly barely scratches the surface of the fraud that took place here. It doesn't touch on the $100 million of friends and family creditors that were defrauded. It focuses more on the deeds of the false deeds of trust that that Jim mentions, the false creditors that were listed on the schedules, the, the various assets he tried to present as encumbered um, to his bankruptcy creditors, while at the same time for years and decades in the Pacific Northwest, you know, presented himself as fabulously wealthy, um, routinely uh, was seen at the finest dining establishments in the city, routinely seen driving cars that that are probably more frequently seen on South Beach than seen on the streets uh, of Seattle. And, and so this was just a, a, a case that when it was convenient for Mr. Mastro to be fabulously wealthy, to engender the confidence of the people that he swindled, he did so. And when it was convenient for him to be penniless and broke, amazingly enough, he, he engineered that to happen too. I, I've enjoyed going back to look at, at this case in the files. And one thing that I can appreciate is the relative lack of sophistication um, that he took in trying to hide these assets. It was extremely expensive to unwind. It was extremely expensive to make sure he didn't profit. But the good news is, is that he left a pretty long paper trail. And with a lot of work and a lot of effort by, by Jim and Amy and the team they were working with, you know, a, a lot of the, the fraud could be undone. Doesn't mean it was all undone, but it, it's just, it's, I'm, and looking back at it, glad that he um, did so in a way that was was fairly easily traceable uh, from step to step to step. Now it's expensive legally to go get all that undone, and that's one of the things that that I think everyone in the case um, was was talking about when you asked um, Judge Gunn about the dividend in the case. And, and you know, the difference between distributing one and two percent to a creditor may not. You know, that, that, that's a cent on the dollar, right? That's not a huge amount, but the, the ability to go and make sure that, that Mastro profited as little as possible from the fraud schemes, I think is extremely important for the bankruptcy system and to show that, that look, he's not going to get away with all these assets. Yes, the French government may not have extradited him, and that, I think, sticks in the crawl of, well, I'll just say me, and I think many people, but um, it, it still is the case that, that he didn't get away with 11 suitcases of jewelry and a house and these fine automobiles and things like that. And I think that is a real credit to, to Jim and Amy and the work they did in the case. I really liked the article which talked about how when they held Jim held his auction of the personal tea, there were many high-end purses and shoes and all of these things. And my favorite part of that entire news article was the woman who ran a high-end consignment shop who bought a lot of it at a fairly, you know, under retail and then was going to rent it out and or sell it, or the woman who spent twelve thousand dollars and then was going to put it in a charity auction hoping to make a hundred thousand dollars later that year. I mean, that as a bankruptcy judge, I was like, really, we couldn't have just skipped the charity auction portion of this. But nonetheless, yeah, yeah, I can see going into other hands as opposed to the Mastro's hands um, was a was an outcome which wasn't necessarily equal dollars and cents, but sometimes that's not the answer we get. How about you, Amy? Any final thoughts about the case? And I'll let Jim get the final words. I just really echo what Thomas just said. It, it's unimaginable. You can't even try to begin to explain the amount of work. Um, and it was all always with the intent of trying to get more to creditors. And what Jim described, every single path we went down was just fraught with 
unimaginable sets of facts, unfortunately. So. Well, Jim, I, you know, I'm going to give you the final word on this. this. These are facts that you can't, even if we tried to pitch a movie with these facts, I think Hollywood would laugh in our face as to how um, this might have been the most sophisticated, bumbling crook we've ever seen. And maybe one of the luckiest, depend, depending on how you, you feel it. Although I was trying to imagine in my mind what actor would be the one driving across Canada in the Land Rover with the three yippy dogs. And I hadn't yet cast it. So any final thoughts as to the, the gift that keeps on giving the case that is following you into your retirement out, uh, out of the bankruptcy practice for the most part and how, how this has all impacted you for the past decade? Well, it's been a great case to work on. I mean, bankruptcy trustee, you know, I've been a bankruptcy trustee since uh, 84, and, and it pays the rent, but it's not the, the most exciting work uh, available out there. And I will say that for um, for several years, I'd wake up in the morning on Monday mornings and say, wow, what, what am I going to find this week that nobody could have believed would be possible to happen? Uh, it, it's, it's been really very exciting to work on it. Um, I, I wish that I would have either found more property or had uh, less legal fees to get the property that we've got so that the creditors could have received more money. But that's been outside my control. Um, so we'll see. Maskell's still alive in Anison. Maybe when he dies, we'll find some money. All right. Well, I want to thank Jim Ringby, the Chapter 7 trustee in the Master case, Amy Willig, his counsel, Thomas Buford, a former Office of the United States trustee, employer, U.S. trustee, and now in private practice, um, which has gone on after the case, for joining us in this episode of Bad Boys in Bankruptcy um, from the ABA Business Law Section Bankruptcy Committee. Thank you all for your time for participating and thank you all for your efforts in this case. What a fun and interesting ride to have learned about in anticipation of today's conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.